Let me tell you why I worry about the world that we live in, because I, I do get concerned as I look around and I, I see what's happening and I see how people are thinking. Uh, I, I, I worry. And the other day, when I saw a survey in the Wall Street Journal, I worried again. I trust the Wall Street Journal. I trust them to give me the information that's important to know. I trust them to give me down-to-earth, realistic analysis of what's going on in the world today so I can make an intelligent assessment of what I need to do as a citizen of this planet, as a person who cares, as a Christian who's trying to do what God wants me to do in the world. And so as I turn to the ideas market on this, in this weekend's Wall Street Journal, I saw a survey and I like surveys. I saw charts and everything. And underneath where it said survey, sentiment tracker was the title of the survey, a computational analysis of the conversation on social networks. And I thought, what could this be about? What are people talking about? What are people exchanging opinions about? This has got to be good. This has got to be important. I trust the Wall Street Journal until I read the next line the return of the McRib, <laughs> the online buzz about McDonald's reissue of a sporadically beloved, if off-derided, fast food sandwich. Now, decades ago, I sinned. I ate the McRib sandwich. I remember. I remember, you know, wanting a McRib and, and feeling deep desire in my heart to go after a McRib. And so uh, I, I don't disdain the fact that people eat McRib sandwiches from time to time. But what bothers me is that they would put a survey about this in the Wall Street Journal, that this would be deemed important news. When this is important news, we have lost our way. The world is going down the tubes, and I get concerned about a world that wants to know more about the McRib. Actually, the survey wasn't so much what bothered me. It was the number of people who responded. 13,000 people said that they were excited and happy that the McRib was back. 9,000 people said they were not particularly happy with the McRib sandwich. So you put that together. Over 20,000 people thought that this was worthy of their time, that, that their lives are so meaningless that they would have to find some hope in a pressed pork meat sandwich you know, slathered with some kind of a sauce, and they would do this. This, this is mind-boggling. This is why I'm concerned about the world. I'm also concerned about the world because of the way that people act in the world today. Now, I have to confess, being from up north, having grown up up north, we just have a tradition. That tradition is this. When you're out in traffic and, and you're at an intersection, when the light turns green, if somebody doesn't move in a tenth of a second, you blow the horn. It's a rule. It's a rule that we have up north. Somebody doesn't move in a tenth of a second, eh, it, it wakes them up. It reminds them, we got to go somewhere. And, and when you come down south, you have to adjust to that because down south, the light turns green. It could be three days before anybody moves. Everybody's trying to be polite. People take lawn chairs out of their trunk. They sit down. They, have, they make some Louisiana iced tea. It's just a wonderful time. Hey, how's your mama and them? And you start having conversations. You build relationships. Pretty soon, right there in the middle of an intersection, there's a church. So, uh, you know, but every once in a while, I lose track of the fact that I'm here. I'm not living up there anymore. I get to an intersection. The light turns green, and I lay on the horn. I did this the other day, and then I noticed the bumper sticker on the car in front of me. Keep honking, I'm reloading. 
I said, man, I picked the wrong intersection at the wrong time. But that's why I worry. People are uptight. People are angry. People are frustrated. People are ready to blow any second. And this is the world in which we live. Does this world know anything about love, really? What, what is love? How can we learn what love really means? Where can we go to find out probably what the most important commodity in the world today is? Love. Today I want to teach you one thing. Just one thing about love. And I'm going to tell it to you right now. So if you want to go home right now, that's fine. That's good because I want you to hold on to this for the rest of your life. Here's the one thing. Love chisels everything. Love chisels everything. We've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been trying to understand what Paul wrote to the early church People were, were gathering together. They were meeting in homes. They were, they were wanting to know and understand, what does this mean that God came into the world as Jesus Christ? What does it mean when we accept him into our lives and, and we start to then follow him, led by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And so Paul's writing to the, to the early churches. He's writing to this particular church in Corinth, a city in Greece. He writes eloquently. He writes with great purpose. He writes with passion and his words end up in, in a book that we call the Bible. And as somebody said to me this week, the Bible is a roadmap for life. It's where you can understand the principles that will help you make the right decisions. It's where you can lay down a foundation upon which you can build a life that has meaning. But people have lots of, of different ideas about the Bible. And some people in, in the modern age, don't even trust the Bible anymore. They don't even know what to think about it. And they want to even change it a little bit. I was talking to a group of students the other day, and I gave them all a copy of the Ten Commandments. Everybody has a copy of the Ten Commandments. And I said this, okay, there they are, the Ten Commandments. You decide which ones are in, which ones are out. You decide if you want to change them, if you want to add to them, if you want to take away. You have ten Minutes And the students looked at the Ten Commandments and they talked together in groups. And ten minutes went by and I said, okay, tell me what you think. And across the board in this group of almost 20 people, they were good with eight commandments. They were like, let's just do eight. We can get away with taking two away. It's not going to change our lives too much. One woman wanted to, to add something to one of the commandments, just make it a little more palatable. I said, it's very nice that you want to be a consultant to God. And, uh, but it was funny how, how they, they were willing. Eight was like comfortable. Eight works. And then I said, well, with the people that you live and work with, how many commandments do you think that they're keeping? You, you work with these people. You live with these people. They're your family. They're, they're your friends. How many commandments are people in general keeping across the board? And it was a consensus of the class that people are keeping three. Three worked. Three, we could go with three, but we got to just get past those other seven. It makes life too hard. But the Bible is trying to give us the kinds of lives that have meaning and purpose and hope. It's not here to, to get in the way of building our lives. It's here to give us the life that God wants us to have, the life that is a gift from him and the life that becomes a gift to others. So let me talk to you today from chapter 16 and 13 
of Paul's letter to Corinth. His first letter to Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Verses 13 and 14. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. And the context for Paul's teaching is do everything in love. Love chisels everything. Love is going to make everything better. Love is going to work. It's going to make your life good. It's going to give it some, some hope and some meaning that you're not going to get if you just go after those things on your own or to satisfy your own urges or impulses or your own desires to have a great life. Love chisels everything. Do everything in love. But what he's doing here in the, in the early formation of the church is he's teaching them principles on how how their community is going to work. This is how it's going to work. This is how it's going to work best for you. This is how it's going to work best for everyone. And I call these principles in 1 Corinthians 16, grace giving. Number one, the work of the church begins in your heart. It's implied when you're doing everything in love. That's what that's all about. The work of the church always begins in your heart. When you feel connected, when you feel, hey, this is worth my time, my energy, my investment, that's when church works best. The work of the church always begins in your heart. And then he says commitment to a schedule of giving is important. Have a schedule of giving. doesn't mean that you're just going to follow a pattern that never changes. It means that you in your mind are going to say, I have planned out my investment to what God is doing. I had a woman talk to me one time. and She was really confused about giving to missionaries because she had decided to give to about, oh, maybe half a dozen missionaries, and this one was getting $100 a month, and this one was getting $150 a month, and this one was getting $50 a month. And when you added it all up, it was a pretty good investment. It was a pretty good sum of money that, that she was earning that she was giving away, which is very admirable. But her problem was this. She had a seasonal type of, of income to where during the holidays and other times of the year, her income was high. And at other times of the year, her income was low. So it was high and it was low, and yet the monthly commitments were always the same, always the same. And she came to me saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. And some of you who are, are mathematically inclined, you're already way ahead of me because I wasn't under the stress or pressure that she felt she was under. It was easy for me to see this right up close and personal. And I said... All you have to do is when you have more money on those upswing times, you give more money. You're going to be out ahead of your commitments so that when you have less money and you're on the downside of your income, you will give less. You might not even have to give anything because you'll already be ahead of the game over here. And she took a deep breath and she understood that that was the schedule that she was going to live with in terms of her giving. Paul is saying in terms of grace giving, commitment to a schedule of giving is important. 
For some people, that's a weekly schedule. For some people, that's a monthly or quarterly schedule. For some people, it's an annual schedule just because of the way income arrives in your life, in the world in which you live. But grace giving first begins in your heart. The work of the church begins in your heart. Commitment to a schedule of giving is important. Your giving is to be in proportion to what you have, not what you don't have. This is what I think most people want to hear and need to hear. I don't even like to, to talk about this. You say, well, then if you don't like to talk about it, why are you talking about it? Because I talk about the things that are written in Scripture, and this is written in Scripture. The idea here is set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Your giving is to be in proportion to what you have, not what you don't have. So all you have to do is look at what God is giving you and what he has blessed you with in terms of income and resources, and then you say, out of that, I'm going to set aside a portion to honor him. In another passage of Scripture, it says, make a decision that you're going to do this, and then just do this. Another passage of Scripture says, God loves a cheerful giver, and the word there is really the word hilarious. God wants you to be in such joy when you give that it frees you up. For a lot of people, giving becomes pressure. It becomes stress. It was never meant to be that way. It's not designed to be that way. If you're feeling pressure and stress, you're not in grace giving, and you're not in biblical giving. You know, I don't feel like I have to talk about this a lot because I believe you already understand that God has asked you to do something, and you're just trying to figure out, how do I do this? The work of the church begins in your heart. Commitment to a schedule of giving is important. Your giving is to be in proportion to what you have, not what you don't have. And finally, when everyone is an owner of ministry, ministry happens. And this is what ministry is. Ministry is a gift to, of love to someone. Ministry is always a gift of love to someone. Ministry always looks at something sees a gap and says the gap will be filled. And every time a gap is filled, that's love. That's what was happening there in the blind side. That, that family reached out. They saw a gap in a young man's life. And they said, we're going to move into that gap. We're going to fill that gap. Filling of that gap is what love is. And then so beautifully around the table as the women were, were talking, she said, you're going to change that, that man's life, that young man's life, that boy's life. And she said, no, he's changing my life. Love chisels everything. Now let's talk a little bit about love and filling the gap. The other day I was at uh, my alternate 7-Eleven, which is Wolf Snare and First Colonial Road, by the way. And I'm over there. It's a little harder to get in and out, so I go there less frequently, but I like it. And, uh, and I'm over there, and I, I go into 7-Eleven, and I notice there are two guys. It's, it's election day, and there are two young guys. They're about 9 years old, 10 years old. Maybe they have skateboards. Their skateboards are almost bigger than they are. So they're carrying around these, these humongous skateboards. They're in 7-Eleven, and they're, they're doing what I used to do when I was a little kid. They're just looking at stuff like they wish they could buy it but they ain't got anything to buy it with. You know, just looking at stuff. So they're looking. They're standing in front of the donut case. They're looking. They're moving over to the candy, and they're looking. And then they're walking around, and they're looking at Sprite and Coke and root beer, and they're looking. And they're just kind of looking at Fritos and, and Doritos and all kinds of crazy stuff, and they're just looking. 
And so I get my stuff and I walk outside and then I'm always observing and watching. So I'm now watching through the window and these kids are just like two little squirrels running around the store looking and running around the store and looking. And I'm watching this and I'm starting to think, I remember when I was a little kid like that, going into the candy store, I didn't have two cents to rub together. I was praying to find like a Coke bottle to turn in so I could buy a piece of bubble gum. And so, so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill this gap. I'm going to make this happen for these two kids. So I go into 7-Eleven. I walk up to these boys. They're standing there just looking at, at red licorice, just like looking skateboards. And I got a $5 bill, and I hand it to the kids. And I go, here, guys, here, guys, get anything you want. And I turned, and I walked away. And then one of the boys looked up at me. And I, he's down here, and I'm like up here. So I look kind of like a giant, right? So he looks up at me, and he goes, are you the pastor of Spring Branch? <laughs> Let's do that one more time. Are you the pastor of Spring Branch? Let's do that one more time. Are you the pastor of Spring Branch? Okay, so it was like it was like, oh, this is I'm like an angel sent from above. Like an angel. And I said, Yes, I am. That's that's me. And he goes, I go to that church. And, and I knew that I had I could have made him a member, like right there. I could have said, sign right here, kid. Sign right here. Be a member for life now. But it was just it was just filling of the gap. That's that's what love is. Love is looking around. It's, it has nothing to do so much with giving. It's like looking around and saying, right there's a space, and I can put my life in that space, and, and that space will be filled, and love will make a difference. The world uh, writes songs about love. The world writes poems about love. The world produces plays about love, all kinds of movies about love, and yet the world struggles to try to figure it out. And as I was thinking about this in terms of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, I thought, I thought, let's look at what the world really thinks about love. So I went to the America Online radio blog of top 100 classic love songs so we could look at over the last so many decades what the world kind of thinks that love is. Number 97 on this list is Frankie Avalon singing Venus. And it says, Frankie sings to the goddess of love for help in a voice that already seems to be halfway to the heavens. Oh, Venus, oh, Venus. Number 80, I see you guys are into this. Number 80 was by Cherish. Who did Cherish? The Association, okay, so cherish is a word. Da, 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 Okay, number 57, Earth Angel, made famous in the Back to the Future movie, Earth Angel, Will You Be Mine, by, and if anybody gets this, I will personally take you to 7-Eleven with me on a field trip. If you get who did Earth Angel, Will You Be Mine, who did it? The Penguins! The Penguins, unbelievable. I, all right, see me afterwards for the field trip, okay? The Penguins. Okay, and then number 39, one of my favorites. And if you, if you were like in the 60s, I think this is the late 60s, you'll remember this. Jay and the Americans, come a little bit closer. Come a little bit closer, you're my kind of man. So big and so strong. And when you sing this song, you have to go like this. 
come a little bit closer. I want to look. The night is so long. Jane the Americans, what a, what a contribution to our cultural knowledge. And then we have number six, number 16 and 13, by the Four Seasons. Sherry and Can't Take My Eyes Off of You with the great falsetto voice of Frankie Valley, and I won't even try or I'll have to go to the hospital. And then you have number six, Be My Baby. Who did Be My Baby? The Ronettes, people. Be My Baby, the Ronettes. Head Beach Boy Brian Wilson has said he considers this yearning love song the greatest pop record ever made. Be my, be my baby, be my little baby, my one and only, be my little girl, be my, come on. Okay, and then number one, number one, the Righteous Brothers. A lot of you are now seeing the movie Ghost. Movie Ghost had a very creepy ending. You don't want that to happen to you, so you better come to church. All right, so right for number one, Unchained Melody, yearning, dedication, passion, and faith, all framed in an epic wall of sound. And so the world cries out about love, writes songs about love, writes poetry, puts together movies about love, and yet the world has never come close, ever come close to the eloquence of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 as he teaches us what love really is. And if you get this, if you get this, it has the power to change everything in your life. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong, which literally is, an, is echoing brass and in English, we get the word cacophony from that word there in the Greek. Cacophony. Too many sounds. Too much noise. Can't even really. It's, it's deafening. If I don't have love, I am like a cacophony. I'm just a big, gigantic noise or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do, but do not have love, I am nothing. I can know it all. I can have umpteen degrees after my name. I can have been in school for decades, and I can have faith. I can be in Bible studies and, and prayer meetings, and I can be in worship services. I can have all that together. But if I don't have love, I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, literally, if I parcel out all my property for food and then feed poor people and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, look, I have given everything away, but I do not have love. I gain nothing. If I make a gigantic show of, of philanthropy, but there's no real love in it, it's empty. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Literally, it does not 
behave as one who brags all the time and says, look at all these things that I have done. It is not proud, literally puffed up. See somebody who's, who's proud of what they've done and they, they kind of take deep breaths and they kind of, you know, I've been able to accomplish these things. It's not puffed up. It does not dishonor others, or meaning it's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Sometimes people seem to be so easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Literally, love does not reckon the evil. Love doesn't keep track of a, a list of bad stuff that happened to them, bad stuff that's happened all around, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It's not looking for bad stuff to happen so that they can go, see, you deserved it, but says, I'm happy that we figured that out now. I'm happy that we're, we're on the right track now. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Always, 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 always. Love never fails. And then he, he directs his comments right into the hearts and minds of this, this fledgling church. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. You think you, you guys are all so smart, don't you? You know all this stuff now. Think you're smart. It's all going to end. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. You think that you have spiritual giftedness and you really impress yourselves when you use those spiritual gifts in a way that draws attention to yourselves. Your mouths will be shut someday. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy prophecy in part but when completeness comes what is in part disappears we live in a world that is incomplete and we know it and we feel it and it's agonizing sometimes but when we get to heaven when we get to see him all that stuff just dissipates and we know and we understand all things. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. He has to use that language because they're acting in selfish ways with each other and toward each other. They're all caught up in a dynamic of, what do I get out of this? When I became a man, when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. There's a transitional moment from when you, you say, it's not about me anymore, but it's about I get to fill a gap. I get to be chiseled by love, and I get to let God use my life to chisel love into life. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I, only, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Life as clear as it gets, it's never fully clear. As clear as it can be, it never comes into crystal 
clear focus because we're on our way somewhere. We're on our way to a place that's beyond our wildest imaginations and, and thinking. And it's so hard to understand that. You, you have to go with that on faith. As Paul says, you know, this is just like a reflection in a mirror. When we get there, we're going to see God face to face. Now we only know partially about life. Then we're going to understand everything. In the way that God understands us fully, we're going to know everything about God. We're going to know. You know the question I get asked a lot? Who made God? You will have the answer to that question. Where did God come from? How did all this really begin? You will know. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When you get to heaven, you don't need faith because you're in heaven. When you get to heaven, you don't need hope because you're in heaven. When you get to heaven, you are smack in the middle of love. You are breathing it in and out. You're experiencing it in all of its fullness and the magnitude that is beyond our ability to understand. This is so profound. Uh, let, me, let me give it to you in another translation. The message, Adam referred to this earlier because it kind of even turns these phrases a little, a little quicker. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but, but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day. And if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything. Now that doesn't mean that you just let everything go and you let everything ride because God might want to let love chisel on something, but it means you're going to go a long way down the road and you're going to pray harder and you're going to have more patience and more kindness because that's what God wants us to have with each other. Puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompleteness, our incompletes will be canceled. And right there, Eugene Peterson turns a phrase so beautifully, as beautifully as the Apostle Paul turned a phrase 2,000 years ago. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. I look at this and I go, oh, I am so far from this. A long time ago, I thought, you know, if somebody just said, Michael, you can have one chapter of the Bible, and that's it. You get one chapter for the rest of your life. Pick it now. 
That's the chapter that I picked. If I could have one page of the Bible in my back pocket to pull out and look at every day and kind of measure my life against it, that's it. And that is painful because love chisels everything. It's not about being smarter. I want to be smarter. It's not about doing more stuff in ministry. I like doing stuff in ministry, but it's not just doing stuff in ministry. It's not about having excellent leadership and and knowing six leadership principles that will transform everything about your future. Those things are good, but Paul is saying love demolishes that stuff to see what's really there. And if there's anything there that's not complete and utter humility and dependence upon God, there's nothing there. You just can't parade smartness and intellect and prowess and, and financial ability to make things happen and, and, and influence and people that you know. You can't parade around with that stuff. God says, you have to just let me chisel on you a lot because there's a lot that I need to chisel away. And when love chisels everything, finally and ultimately, you know who you are and you know who he is. So the older I get, the more I realize it's not me, it's him. It's not what I do, it's what he does through me. And if I can just fill a gap somewhere, somehow, that's been a pretty good day. So the other day I, I had meetings and things happening, letters to write, emails to answer, and all kinds of things happening, swirling around. And, 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 but I needed to go to Hampton, to the Centera Careplex, to visit a woman who was 95 years old. I had, I had never met this woman before. And the day started to get away from me. You know how the day gets away from you? You get up in the morning, you have, you have good intentions and good plans, and then this happens, that happens, and phone call, people walk in, the meetings, meetings on top of meetings. The day starts to get away, and all of a sudden it looks like today is getting pushed into tomorrow, and that's what started to happen to me. And, but I said, no, I'm taking this time. I went and I got in my car and I drove to the hospital, and I went to the fourth floor, and I met Myrtle. Myrtle, who's 95 years old, who's been there now about three months, who's just kind of laying in a bed, and people are poking her and, and pushing her and pinching her and flushing tubes and everything. Her hair's all done up, and she's getting her glasses on to see me. I don't even know she's 95 years old. I didn't know that till later. And so I start to talk to Myrtle. And at first, you know, Myrtle wasn't even really sure who I was. You know, she never met me before. And we got to talking about how she grew up a Baptist and how she used to like to go to church. And I said, did you like going to Sunday school? And she said, oh, I loved going to Sunday school. I loved going to Sunday school. She talked about how the pastor would come over to her house and how her father was a, a leader in the church. And, and it just seemed like everything in her life centered around one thing. And that one thing was Jesus Christ. And she had done the best she could to live that out and to let God chisel on her for 95 years. And there she was. And I said, as time came to a close, I said, well, I'm going to sing Amazing Grace, and, and then I'm going to pray. 
And she smiled, and a little twinkle came to her eye. And I started to sing Amazing Grace. And all of a sudden, she started to sing Amazing Grace. And all of a sudden, the nursing attendant started to sing Amazing Grace. And all of a sudden, the nurse started to sing Amazing Grace. It was a choir of four people, not the, the best choir you ever heard in your life. But it was a good choir, just the same. And we sang, and then, then I prayed. And I prayed realizing that I was with a woman who was a light because love had chiseled everything for almost 100 years. And I left. And the realization came over me as I was getting back in my car. That was the best thing I did all day. That was hands down the best thing I did all day. It wasn't about being smart. It wasn't about who I knew. It wasn't about answering you know, important email stuff. It wasn't about writing letters. And that was the best thing I did all day. And somehow God had chiseled on my heart because of her. And as the week went on, I looked back and I realized that was the best thing I did all week. And that's the best thing I'm thinking about right now. And what did I really do? I just showed up in, in a room in the hospital with one of God's faithful and spent a little time and sang Amazing Grace, had my heart renewed. This is what uh, I'd like you to ask yourself as you leave today. I call this... Love chisels everything. Where do I need to let love chisel on something in my life that needs to change? How can I let God chisel my current giving pattern into grace giving? What could be the best thing I do this week if I let God do something through me? If I let God chisel my schedule? If I let God chisel my vision? The Apostle Paul wrote, do everything in love. Last weekend, I was in Denmark. Someone gave a gift this summer that allowed me to, to take another mission trip to Denmark and to go to the Global Leadership Summit in Copenhagen. And I honestly went thinking this time, um, am I supposed to keep doing this? Is this the right thing for me to do? And I, I asked God to give me an answer very clearly on this trip. And it was like every single day something happened that just smacked me right in the face. And it was just like God was saying, Michael, you just keep doing this. This is important for you to do. You're doing this for me. You're not doing this for anybody else. And so by the end of the, the, the weekend, I was convinced, you know, that next year I'd be back again. But what happened very significantly was on Saturday morning. On a hunch, I had brought with me a DVD of our well drilling project in Togo. I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe they need to see this. Maybe they need to be challenged to step up to something. Because in my travels there over the last five years, I've seen the church trying to, to grow and renew itself in a post-Christian culture. 2% of the people in Denmark going to church. In Europe, it could go as low as 1% of the people going to church. It's really a post-Christian culture. The form of the church is there, but the, the, the heart of the church is just is struggling. But there's some great people there, so they're trying to renew the church. And I thought, 
you know, you're, you can't totally be renewed and up and running unless you start giving yourselves away to something and to someone. So on a hunch, I brought that video and I gave it to one of the leaders and I said, I brought this, you might want to use this in the leadership summit. Here it is. He says, we'll take a look at it. So they looked at it and they said, we don't want to use it on Friday where you thought it would work. Uh, we already have something prepared for that. But we want to use it on Saturday when we take the offering for the Third World International Sites for the Global Leadership Summit. And, uh, and they were going to give me a chance to get up and to talk about it. And so I got up in front of those folks in Copenhagen and I talked about it and I showed the video and I told them, you know, this all started, this all started right here in Copenhagen where I met a pastor from Togo and, and God did this. And I called this Make Away God and they watched the video. Then they took the offering. And the year before the offering was 35,000 Danish kroners, which is the equivalent of 7,000 US dollars. And this year, the offering was 60,000 Danish kroners, the equivalent of 12,000 US dollars. And God had, had touched people's hearts in such a way with that little video that they almost doubled what they gave the year before. And so I went and I sat down, very humbled by the whole experience. I didn't know what the offering was at that point. And a pastor slipped out, came around and stood next to me. And, and I stood up, and he had sort of a scowl on his face, and he said, I was struggling, I was struggling with what I was going to give to this. And then you talked, and I wasn't struggling anymore, and I gave more than I thought I was going to give, and this is all I have left. And he held out his hand. He had two pieces of candy, and a big smile broke out on his face, and he just handed me the candy, and he said, thank you, and he walked away. Love had chiseled his heart in a moment and changed him forever. And that's what love does, and that's what God wants to do with your heart. That's what he wants to do all the time, each and every day. You know, I, I worry about the world and the craziness of it, and what people are thinking about and how they want to change the Ten Commandments and, and how people are angry and they're ready to, to just blow in a, in a minute. And then I think, no, in the middle of that world, love chisels everything. Love chisels the heart of a pastor in Copenhagen. And in a moment, he's changed. Love chisels me when I go visit a 95-year-old faithful woman in the hospital and we sing amazing grace love chisels into the gap with two little boys wondering if anybody knows that they just want something to eat in 7-eleven and somebody shows up out of the clear blue and fills that gap love is around you all the time trying to to chisel on you and trying to chisel with you and i only want you to remember that one thing it's the most important thing. It'll change everything. Love chisels everything. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for each person here today as we have looked at your definition of love, as we have heard the, the words of Paul echoing through 
2,000 years of church history. Father, call us to be men and women who, who show up and fill gaps. Show us to be love. Show us to, to have more patience. Show us not to be so easily angered. Show us how to hang in there when things are really hard and difficult. Show us how to have a vision for your kingdom that goes beyond what we think we're supposed to do to what we know you have called us to do. Father, in every way, in all times, and in every place, allow love to chisel everything in us and through us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to me now. Lay your hand over me. Even if it's a lie, say it will be alright. I shall be near. Broken into. I only come home when I'm so alone. I do believe that not everything is gonna be the way you think it ought to be. It seems like every time I try to make it right, it all comes down on me. Please say honestly, you. shall be near. I shall be near. Open the door. Show me your grace tonight. I know it's true. No one heals me like you. You hold Never again, but I turn away from you. I'm so heavy tonight, but your love makes it right. I do. I shall be 
Shall be.